1: Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network.
2: the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, November 30, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Tony Greer. But first, here's what we're looking at. Sell-off in US equity markets, looks like uh, major indices down across the board, about one5 to 2%, still bouncing around a little bit. We'll talk more about that as the show goes on. Big news on the day. Fed Chair Jerome Powell on the Hill today saying it's time to retire the word transitory in relation to inflation. Additionally, Chair Powell also stating that it may be appropriate for the Fed to consider wrapping up the taper more quickly than originally planned due to inflationary pressure. I'm shocked, shocked to learn that inflation is not transitory. Uh, Tony Greer, what's going on here, man? Is the Fed starting to lose control of this narrative?
1: You know, I think they're being a little bit quite the opposite, Ash. And I could be wrong, but I'm looking at this as they are kind of opportunistically piling on the Omicron variant headlines, which, you know, yesterday, Jerome Powell came out and said that the Omicron variant poses downside risk to the economy. Right. Right? That complicates the inflation picture. I think that dovetails nicely with the administration's attempts to get the price of gasoline lower and sort of get that out of the headlines in the short term if they can. And then as you said, you know, the most important thing that he does today is he comes in and he takes away the punch bowl. You know what I mean? Like everybody's sitting here looking to see how he's going to address it and he finally addresses it like a man and retires transitory and says they're going to fight inflation taper earlier. Um, You know, and it has the desired effect on the bond markets, right? We see break-evens finally come apart and pull all the way back into support. And remember that because all risk assets right now are into support, in my opinion, or close to it. Um, And then, you know, uh, you start seeing break-evens pull back and you have that bear flattener action in the bond market where the curves are flattening. It's, It's again, you know, potentially pricing in a slowdown. God forbid from a lockdown or um, you know, a couple of other developments. And I feel like honestly, Ash, we're getting to the point where it's time to start bidding for risk assets, including the stock market, oil, uh, cryptocurrency, and a few other things. So we can go whichever direction you want first, but there's a lot to cover here today.
2: Well, let's take your opening thesis because I think it's a really interesting point. So let's assume you're correct. Uh, that this has been played sort of brilliantly by the maestro uh, at the Fed with, in terms of the execution, uh, taking the punch bowl away, putting against expectations, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't this kind of a dangerous game uh, to play, Tony? Like, let's think this through, right? So, you know, the, the 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 chair of the Fed comes forward and says, "Look, inflation has been clearly out of control here. Uh, it doesn't look transitory any longer. Uh, it may be time to start thinking about withdrawing uh, accommodation." So, meanwhile, now you have a you have a seven and a half percent drop in WTI uh, at peak to trough today. I think we're down around four point eight percent negative on the day in WTI. I don't know if that's what says on your screen, uh, but look, here's the thing uh can markets really be fine tuned like this is like this almost kind of neo Keynesian idea uh that they're this sort of you know you got all the dials, you look at all the dials, you process all the information, you change the switches, you fiddle with the knobs, and suddenly
1: yeah. you can achieve this like perfect landing it sounds like a dangerous game to play yeah, you know it it feels like a dangerous game uh unless you control the money supply you know which makes it which makes the games a little bit easier you know um it's like like we said, they find they managed to get commodities off of the peak. And right. another thing that makes it easier for the Federal Reserve is I have a feeling that they may have had something to do with, or at least the dollar is rallying on its own. Okay, whether it's the Federal Reserve that's encouraging that, whether it's the market-based inflation expectations backing off that are causing that, whether it's, you know, the the encroachment of lockdowns across Australia and Europe and the UK that are causing that, the dollar is up and gone. So that's yeah. a major, major move that you know we were talking about over the last couple of weeks and saying, hey, look at this. The dollar is rallying, but commodities are holding on, right? Finally, the dollar rally was so persistent and wound up being of the right magnitude to finally- you know take a lot of the air out of the commodity complex and I kind of welcome it to be quite honest with you we needed to clear out a little bit of length in the energy markets clear out some length in the stock market we needed to see a pullback to moving average support which is what I see all over the place ash and that's why I'm excited about this pullback so if we you want to go into equities first yeah let's um, talk it through by the way tony this is what I love about having you on when everyone is
2: fearful you're looking for opportunity
1: Yeah, man. you know This is it. This this looks a lot like a lot of the dips that we've seen in the past, Ash. So I'm not going to get scared about this. I'm not going to think that we're about to curl over in the S&P and start huffing lower. And I don't even believe that about the commodity complex. I think that it's a really, really, you know, I think it's a temporary reaction. And I think it's quite a manufactured overreaction. And I don't want to get into the virus diagnosis here, but everything I've read about Omicron sounds like garbage. There's a couple of cases in South Africa. The president goes and and, you know, um, says we're not taking flights from South Africa. You know, all of this. You get the news from South African doctors that, like, what is the world doing? There's not a really this isn't a terrible variant that we're dealing with. The New York state governor goes ahead and declares a state of emergency in the state of New York. Like, what are we talking about here? So, once again, in terms of policy response, we've completely jumped the shark. Into oh my god, a new tidal wave is coming, and it's absolutely not as of now. So, if it turns out that the you know the the media and the Federal Reserve and our government is opportunistically hyping up the Omicron variant, then you're going to see markets snap right into shape in no time. And it feels like we're getting there. So, when I want to, I just want to mention you know in this stock market ash. It feels a lot like the other dips. It seems like a very controlled, even more so controlled than the Evergrande episode that we fought back in September. Right, there was a lot more uncertainty, a lot more volatility, and if you ask me, a lot more risk to the markets with a major Chinese shipping company going under than this Omicron variant, you know, creeping its way around the globe and 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 simultaneously closing down countries in its wake. I'm just not seeing that happen. So now that we've got an S&P that's had that old famous formula that we know and love and we've put our kids through college on and, and purchased all kinds of things, we are in that mode where we're seeing those clusters of big tick index extremes on the downside. So far on Monday, we saw a minus 1,800 on the low. Today we saw a minus 1,700 on the low. You know what my eyes are peeled for now, right, Ash? A little dip to the moving averages, a red to green day, and then man, we're gone. That's what I think is going to happen. And I'm kind of looking for the bat signal, right? I'm looking for the bat signal. I'm looking for up in the sky for somebody to say, you're right, Omicron's bullshit. And here we go with the risk assets again. You know, if you look at some of them, you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know, they've been great performers of uh, against inflation as inflation hedges. They haven't moved a whole lot in this little de-risking episode, so that's been encouraging to me. In the yeah. fact that you know, cryptocurrency is looking at the world and saying, "Man, you guys are going to shut out, shut down over the Omicron variant. Not a concern of ours. You guys are going to raise. Uh, excuse me. You guys are going to ease up on the taper now. Take away the punch bowl. Not even a concern just yet." You know, and I think that speaks to the utility of the cryptocurrencies kind of creeping into the picture and, and holding on to their value. But I don't want to, you know, get all over the map. I think it's important to talk about the rotation, the commodity markets, right. the S&P. Guide me here a little bit, Ash. Like I well, said, we've exactly got, got a lot to talk about.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, Tony. So that's the thesis, that's the big picture. Walk us through the breakdown as you look at US equity markets sector by sector uh, and what your plays are there and why.
1: Yeah. The, the, you know, today's interesting, Ash, because it's month end. Right, so you know we we saw markets just get a little bit creamed on month end. To me, it kind of plays into the idea that if you got week longs on your pad, they're all under pressure. Take the loss and sell them. Right, come into December fresh as a daisy and look and see what's going to run for the last couple of weeks. But in the month of um, excuse me, in the month of August, what we saw was a lot of weakness in sort of social media. Metals and mining. Um, we saw a pullback in energy, so it was a natural resources pullback. Resources pullback. But we saw FANG stocks flat on the month. We saw the Russell go down. We saw, um, you know, we're seeing cybersecurity and software breakout. We're seeing social media breakdown behind Twitter and this terrible, terrible choice of a CEO. It seems like they just picked. And you know, the rotation is still alive. You know, when I look at the rotation on a daily basis, yeah, today is a big red day. It's one those down days when the S&P is going to migrate back into support and find a level. But overall, it's been a natural resources pullback, the commodity complex pullback, and equities in a really, really orderly pullback. Now, I don't get I don't get fatal about moves like this because everything seems fairly controlled. You've still got sectors like the Home Builder Index that put in a 4% breakout gain in August. You've still got sectors like semiconductors, basically the supply chain story. The supply chain is still going to be kinked, semiconductors are going to continue to make new highs. So the rotation is still aggressive. You can find bull markets within these big bear market moves and big pullbacks. And now it's really a question about doing your homework and seeing, you know, which, which assets into support you want to start sticking bids in for, because it seems like we're going to come out of this just like we've come out of every de-risking episode, if I had to guess based on what's going on right now.
2: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N com.
2: Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Let me ask this, one thing that might potentially be different, and I'm curious to get your context on this uh, is as you talk about the Fed uh, taking away the punch bowl, potentially withdrawing the accommodation, uh, you know, the 120 billion, less the 15 billion that's been already been tapered, getting that down to zero uh, by June or sooner, is there a risk, a risk uh, that withdrawing some of that monetary policy accommodation uh, could create a progressive tightening at the margin uh, and therefore
1: make U.S. equities less desirable? There is always the potential for that. That that is an absolute logical read through that deserves some measure of probability measurement. Right? That could definitely happen. We're taking away the punch bowl. You know, changes everything. It could change everything if we take this much liquidity away. Now, is that really going to happen? Number one, are we actually going to go to full taper? Are we going to get there? We don't really know. I don't think the markets had to price that in yet. Well, let's consider. Let's consider when we went back into you know we had taper talk back in 2013, 14, I think it was, and and I'm sorry if I'm I'm off by a year or two, but I'm not off by much. Between 13 and 15, we had that uh, you know a lot of taper talk, and we were talking about the uh, S and P potentially curling over. But what happens is you start seeing that economic strength underlying economic strength start bubbling up under the hood, and if the economic data gets better. Then we can handle a little bit of higher rates and a little bit less liquidity. So there's always that adjustment mechanism in the markets that I'm not going to say, you know, pulling the pulling back on um, the QE is going to automatically mean stocks have to tumble over, right? right? It's often oftentimes we've seen where the Fed is going to ease back on liquidity, um, potentially talk higher rates, and the market says, okay, here's a little dip to acknowledge that, but where do we go from here? oh, we've just got better economic data. That means we can handle higher rates. So I'm looking for that dynamic to potentially play into the markets. I think that's important to watch for and bring up a great point with that. Yeah. Before we transition over to commodities, just to add one more big
2: picture point for people who are trying to get their head around the big picture issues here. So you have this uh, you know, 120 uh, or 105 now, I guess, uh, billion in uh, US Treasury debt and agency debt purchases on a monthly basis by the Federal Reserve. On top of that, You've got interest rates uh, that have been at or near the zero bound for some time other than that period between whatever it was sixteen and and I guess eighteen uh, when they jumped uh, off the zero bound, got to about two point four percent. so you still have you still have interest rates at uh, the zero lower bound. And in addition to that, you've got coming up on eight point seven trillion dollars uh, on the Fed balance sheet uh, up from about uh, eight hundred billion prior to the global financial crisis. So when we talk about accommodative monetary policy, Uh, You still have this massive wall of liquidity. Even as you begin to withdraw that monthly increase in the balance sheet, the balance sheet itself, the stock of debt uh, remains undiminished.
1: Exactly. So, you know, you could talk about the taper all you want. And it's like saying, you know, we're going on a beer run, but we're only going to buy 20 beers, right? We're not going to buy a full case. We're going to buy 20 beers and we're going to put those in the fridge. And then we're going to go out for another 20 beers instead of 24. Right. So it's not like we're exactly, right. you know, we're not reversing the operation in any way, shape, or form. Right. And we're still accumulating beer on the way, you know. So right. we've got the balance sheet now pushing through, you know, pushing toward nine trillion. Um, you've got the ECB balance sheet pushing toward a similar number. I think they're up over eight trillion euro now, which is getting a little bit hairy. And, you know, right now, we're kind of, I'm, personally, I'm really focused on the dollar. Right. The dollar has done all of this wrecking ball damage to the commodity complex. It's set the euro, the Aussie, the British pound back on their heels. As I go around those markets and do some Fibonacci studies on the currencies, I notice that they've all reached, and I'm talking about the currencies now, not the dollar the alternate currencies have reached logical pullback levels, whether they be the Fibonacci retracements or a trend line or just another horizontal support level. And I feel like the dollar is into some resistance, and it's overbought. So I still still have this sort of contention that this is all within the ebb and flow of the secular bull market in commodities, of the secular bull market in equities. And I really do think that the dynamic can continue, especially when I look at the cause. Right, we, we, we locked down the nation once before. It doesn't seem like it's going to be politically palatable again. And I think that's the only thing that really is going to derail this rally. I'm not seeing it. I don't really want to bet on that happening. I'm trying to just play the moves day by day as I see him here. Yeah, good transition by the way
2: into the dollar. Talking about commodities right now, DXY, uh, the dollar index uh, trading at the end of the day here it looks like it closed in 90 around 96, uh, 95 spot 87. Uh, by the way, this is up uh, from about uh, from about 89 in June, quite a dollar rally. Let's talk a little bit about that in the context of commodity markets. Uh, obviously, the base currency there. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing happening right now.
1: Sure, Ash. You know, so th- if you ask me, the Federal Reserve has learned that the dollar is their weapon against headline inflation that's giving them a headache, right? So we saw this happen before, um, right after an FOMC meeting. We came out of the last OFMC meeting and the dollar started rallying and commodities got slaughtered and gold got wrecked from like 1900 down to 1750. And to me, that's that was a big wake up call that was me saying okay if the federal reserve is going to use the dollar and gold as their tools to sort of get everyone out of their hair regarding this inflation that they called transitory at one point that they've now capitulated on they've managed to manage the situation pretty well but when i look and see like where we're going to go from here I still think that the strength in the underlying commodity markets is going to bubble up underneath that. So when I look at, I see the other currencies that have pulled back into support levels, I see the dollar into resistance levels, and it leads me to believe that this dip now in commodities is something that should be bought. But when, you, like you said, when the Fed gets the dollar on the run, we're going to get those market-based inflation um, securities to pull back. Bitcoin and BCom off 7% in the month of August as the dollar took a 2.5% rally. To me, that's a big macrocosm of the whole story right there. So if you reverse this dollar action, and it's going to be a dynamic trading vehicle, it's not going to go up every single month of the year, you're going to reverse the commodity weakness, and you're probably going to start another fire under the equity market. And it's just a question of from what point. So that's how I'm looking at how they're managing it. But I very much feel like you know, when they hear the complaints about the inflation getting hairy, they figure out how to say, okay, let's get the dollar higher. Will knock gold lower. That takes care of the Bloomberg Commodities Index, and you know now they've got the base metals complex into dramatic support. You know aluminum is still battling like a street fighter at its two hundred day moving average. Copper is trying to hold in. You know at ninety five hundred, just below ten k, near the all time highs, not breaking down. And now the big question mark is quite honestly oil. Right, it's been more volatile than the other commodities. It's been a steeper pullback, but at the same time, Ash. You know, I look at this 20% dunk from the high to where we've been, and all I see is opportunity. Mm. You know, we had with a Shell CEO come out and say the oil demand increase is outpacing the growth in supply. Right? Let's not forget the week before Thanksgiving when we um excuse me, the full week before Thanksgiving, we saw record gasoline demand in the US. Excuse me, record global gasoline demand. And so that was a massive number. And then we just walked into this Omicron variant and everybody decided to say, okay, I don't care about the demand. I'm just getting this off of my books. So if we've got the oil market continuing to get tight due to a lack of investment, we've got oil inventories on the decline, and now we've got spreads coming all the way into range support and moving average support, there's no way you're going to get me to sell the oil market into this hole. Right. Because that dynamic fundamentally, where decreasing inventories and now spreads have come in, where, for example, the one year spread was $12 backward aided, right? December to December. Now that we bumped it from the January to January one year spread, it's shrunk to $4. So I don't know anybody that wants to sell anything at $4 that just came in on its way down from 12 into support. So I'm looking at the whole markets, the whole kind of, uh, Collage of the markets as a big risk, uh, me- a big risk measure that got way ahead of itself and has now pulled back into support. And I think I'm looking for the signs for it to turn around again. Yeah, that sounds really
2: bullish. Ultimately, the question here is going to
1: be: What's terminal demand going to look like? What's consumption going to look like in oil? That is, that's the big question. You know, I, I listen to uh, Bloomberg Radio quite a bit, and it seems like you know just to get a, an ear on the playbook. And you know the whole. There's a lot of questioning going on about it. What about Christmas lockdowns? You know, that's what. That's the sort of uh, the quiet narrative that's being pushed through the media. Everybody wants to know: Oh, are they going to lock us down for Christmas? And right now, the authorities are saying, No, it doesn't seem like we're going to not lock anyone down right now. You know, and they've got that sort of ominous feel about it. But it's like you know, but it might be coming. You know, and even though there's nobody dying of this variant around you, and there's no visible illness that you can see we got to pull this mind trick over on you. We gave it a new name, and we need the Omicron variant to be scary. And I feel like that's what we're living through right now. And um, I feel like it's a little bit of an IQ test for traders. So we'll see how it comes out. Yeah, and we're going to obviously have to wait and see uh, in terms of where this shakes out. Uh,
2: scientists are still uh, sequencing the DNA, uh, and more to the point, to your to your really core point, Tony, is we have to see what the actual impact uh, is like on the ground in terms of in terms of illness and how debilitating it is. And right now, you know, we we can all have a point of view about it, but we got a lot of question marks out there, and we're just going to have to wait and see on that. Uh, but to your point, uh, certainly looks like a bullish setup uh, from the technical factors. Talking of which, talking about the dollar as a weapon, offensive, defensive, talking about oil, I wanted to throw to a clip here. This is uh, Luke Grohman being interviewed uh, on Real Vision. This is for plus and pro tier subscribers by Lynn Alden talking about petrodollars and the Cold War. Let's take a look at the clip.
1: The petrodollar deal was a masterstroke of diplomacy. Uh, Ultimately, in, in plain English, what it meant is that We could print dollars for oil and the Soviets actually had to go about all of the work of lifting the oil out of the ground. And that in turn was an essential turning point in the Cold War, in my view, because what it effectively meant was that the Soviet economy, which was very heavily energy dependent, was at a disadvantage to American oil production. Uh, From that point on, because they actually had to do the work to get the oil out of the ground and we could just print the dollars for it. And ultimately, uh, the geopolitical impacts of the petrodollar deal were that we won the Cold War. Well,
2: there you have it—a really intriguing clip. Interestingly enough, it's kind of like everything old is new again. This is sort of very relevant for what we're talking about right now: the idea of the Soviet Union being heavily dependent uh, on Western sources uh, for oil. Uh, right now, obviously, the supply and demand constraint question. Uh, we were just talking a little bit off-camera, Tony, uh, about the SPR release, uh,
1: Strategic Petroleum Reserve. What are your thoughts there? All right. So, I have some pretty specific thoughts on the SPR release um, strategically it doesn't make very much sense for us to be offboarding this oil supply the way the world looks right now right so we know that it is a sort of political football to try to get the price of gas lower and i think that you can confirm that by today with the price of oil backing off aggressively you know we know that it's because of the strong dollar and likely because of these variant fears. And there was a line out of the administration today that's saying, you know, we may do more of this SPR release, right? It's like they they look at the screens and they say, you know what? We're doing it. It's working. Now, if you break it down a little bit, the 50 million barrel SPR release, you know, we've got, um, what is it, 32 million barrels on swap that are coming back, 18 barrels that are being sold. We're selling mostly sour crude oil. Um, And when you look at who have been the biggest global consumers of oil, it's been India and China, they have been big consumers of sour crude, because it doesn't matter to them that the um, sort of uh, pollution goes out into the environment from cracking sour crude oil. Over here in the US, we prefer to crack light sweet crude, because it puts less emission into the atmosphere. So what we're doing with the SPR release is we're handing China and India more oil that they like to burn and crack, so I don't know that being left with less oil going into a more sort of protectionist world that I feel like we're going into a little bit, especially as different countries have different approaches to this um, pandemic that we're still getting through, even though it seems really desperate, and I think we're closer to the end of it um, you know that that is really what I see in the SPR release. I see it as a political football. I see it as, if anything, helping in China and India secure more sour crude. And I see it as a not smart decision that could put us at a strategic disadvantage. God forbid we have any kind of kinetic conflict that I don't even want to talk about or imagine. But I would like to imagine it with the SPR filled to the brim, right? not, not with the SPR deleted. So that's kind of the way I'm looking at the whole thing, if that's fair.
0: Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
2: Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Listen, while we're talking about this, I want to jump into some questions here. Uh, we have a lot of them, and many of them are actually about oil. I wanted to jump in uh, and give you one from Russ Dahman. This is from the Real Vision website. Uh, the question is, Tony, what is the impact of supply chains being snarled on
1: WTI? How do you think about that? You know, it's 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 definitely relevant, right? Um, you know, we're we're still transporting WTI around the world in, in really different different ways now, right? It's going on barges, it's going on rails and trucks, um, you know, intercontinental modal transportation with other types of commodities. So, you know, the snarls don't make it any easier for the for the boats to get around and get into the ports. Um, I you know the oil market might be slightly insulated from you know a complete breakdown in the supply chain, although it wouldn't help. But I'm not sure that if there's a breakdown in the supply chain that it's necessarily bearish the price of oil, right? If anything else, it's likely to be bullish, um you know, if supplies can't reach their destination. So you know I look at it as a sort of separate but complementary factor to the inflation story. if that's right. fair, I'm not really smart enough to figure out what's going to end. You know the supply chain. You know the supply chain crisis. I have a couple of ideas that I don't really want to discuss now, but you know I think that is something that we're going to have with us until um, we probably reach a point of desperation. Unfortunately, you know I'm really bullish on um, food prices. Unfortunately, and I've had some pretty good hedges on in that space, Um, and I think that that is sort of where the real danger zone lies. I mean I know we want to talk about energy. But as energy is a third of our farming costs, at least, you know, the price of food is going to be continually rising now. The longer crude oil can stay at these elevated prices, and by elevated, I mean really above sixty dollars, you know, and and um, you know, sort of way north of fifty, where it starts to cut into the budgets of the food producers. So that that's kind of how I'm looking at how the supply chain relates to crude oil, relates to food costs. And I think my point is that once the higher energy costs translate into higher food costs, that's the only way that we're going to continue to push back on this ESG pendulum, the carbon neutral pendulum that seems to have swung all the way to the left to the point that we took an energy independent company, we made them not excuse me, an energy independent country in the United States. We made ourselves not energy independent, and we are leaning on potential enemies for our crude oil supply so those are a couple of things that sort of you know round out the whole conversation right. of you know the supply chain the energy inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think still that the ultimate translation of it is going to be into higher food costs, and then that finally being where people, you know, draw the political line and say carbon capture was nice and interesting, but it cost me a hundred dollars to fill up my Toyota and four hundred to get out of the grocery store. So that's not going to work for everybody, and I'm not looking forward to it. But I don't see um, how we get around arriving at that place. If this happens to be the top in crude oil and we go into some disastrous, you know, running from a variant situation, the price can probably go lower, but with dwindling inventories. Heading into winter, I'm not looking to short crude oil after this whole complex has pulled back, the curve flattened out, and the price pulled back. So I'm still bullish the complex ash, and I'm looking to work through this dip if that's fair. Yeah, very well said. Uh, this is a really interesting question that comes to us from
2: Nikhil from the RV website. The question is, what do you make of billionaires selling equity? And he goes on to cite Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Stan Druckenmiller, and Satya Nadella.
1: I mean, what else would they do? Right. I mean, greedy CEOs that have more money than they know what to do with, it's fine. Sell some stock, take some cash. I mean, you know, there's nothing we can do, say, or really (laughs) opine about it, in my opinion. You know, it's that's not anything that I can control. We live in a capitalist society. They earn their position. They're allowed to sell stock and do whatever the hell they want with the money. So I try not to get too caught up about it. Yeah. It also sounds like you don't think there's a whole lot of macroeconomic significance in it. No, I really don't. I don't think that they're doing it to affect stock price. And, you know, if somebody was handing me, you know, certificates of paper that I couldn't spend, I'd probably cash them in for dollars or Ethereum or Bitcoin and something that I can spend. So I don't, I can't really hold it against them. That sounds like commerce to me. Yeah. It, it
2: also sounds like you don't think that they see, foresee something coming. Uh, that's going to diminish the value of their equity. You sounds like it's, you're just sort of saying, "Hey, you know, you're getting these awards, right? You've got them in a form that you can't spend them. Why wouldn't you translate them into a form where you can?" Right.
1: I, I don't think there's any CEO. Oh, I could, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's any CEO out there gaming the stock price to the point where they're saying, "I'm going to top tick this thing." Okay, maybe Elon Musk is doing that, but I feel like other CEOs are saying, "Wow, I just got awarded a whole lot of stock and stock options." Where's my liquidity for that? Right. And and I don't think that any of them are saying, you know, I'm going to nefariously sell this at the highs so that when the stock goes down, the other shareholders get buried and they're long my stock. I don't see that happening at all. No. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Listen, one more question I wanted to hit. This one's from Fred Cook uh, from the Real Vision website, Talk about rounding things out really nicely. Uh, Fred wants to know, what are your thoughts going into the end of the year? Hard to believe, Tony, but tomorrow's December.
1: Yeah, man. You know, it's exciting. Well, I tell you, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a lot more time studying the final, final sales of today, which are the November closes. I'm gonna try to find um, you know, the securities that I think are the best risk reward bets um on this dip. And I'm probably gonna try to play them for the end of the year. You know, it still looks to me when I look at the month of November and I see that home builders still managed a four percent breakout. It might have changed a little bit in the last couple of minutes, I know, but you know, they were. They still showed a breakout because yields are lower, and that housing sector is still in motion. Um, housing fundamental bull market, sorry, is still in motion. So that's one sector that's caught my eye for the last month of the year. Um, it's really interesting that semiconductors don't seem to back off, and I've been trying to grasp onto some technology um, on my view matrix. And we bought some software on the dip, the uh, software ETF, because software has been behaving great as a inflation hedge, or rather, I won't call it inflation hedge, but it hasn't suffered as we trade into this inflationary environment. Rather, they've done really well and broken out to new highs, and I hated not having any tech exposure. So I'm looking at sectors like that. I'm trying to see what survived the sell-off the best in November. And I think that once, we, once I get down to that answer, we'll find out what is going to be some of our best performers going into the end of the year. And then, obviously, we're looking to set up for the first quarter of 2022. But right now, while I'm living in the twilight zone and I can't tell what's real, I'm not ready for that yet. All right. We're going to crank up Golden Earring's twilight zone in about 30 seconds here when we wrap.
2: But real quick, final thoughts. I know we've run over, as we always do on a busy day. Final thoughts real quick uh,
1: to leave us with. Yeah, Ash, my thirty thousand foot view up is um I can't get afraid of the Omicron variant given the channels that it's been pushed through. I think that it's going to be something that when we're gonna look back on, it's gonna be like the Delta Plus variant and the Lambda variant and whatever variant we saw. And it's really something for the media to to mess around with. I think the markets are gonna get back on their feet as a lot of risk barometers like WTI, the WTI spreads, Bitcoin, a lot of things pulled back into support. And we're still looking around at an inflationary environment, supply chain issues, a rising balance sheet. Yeah, the Fed's changing their posture a little bit, and that's relevant. But I still think the underlying trend is what's more relevant and I think the fact that our balance sheet is approaching $9 trillion from only $4 trillion in 2019 is still the biggest story generating the most inflation that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah. Well, Tony, so there I think you have it. That's, yeah, that's still in motion. Sorry, Ashley. No, I was just going to say, I,
2: I love having you on, Tony, because that's such a crisp view. You've taken a perspective. There it is. We're going to wait to see what
1: happens. That sounds really well summarized and succinct. I hope so. We're trying our best, man. We're keeping the streak alive. We're trying to stay, you know, we're trying to see the markets clearly and go, um, you know, take every day at a time. But, you know, over the long haul, we've been, we've been seeing the ball pretty well. And nothing has changed about my posture yeah. towards the way that pitch is coming over the plate. I think that's a good way to wrap it up sort of uh, in summation, square the circle if we will. Tony, as always, nice and crisp, smooth as butter. Always a pleasure having you on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're the best, Slash. Love it, man. Great job.
2: Thanks, man. And thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm back tomorrow with Darius Dale. The conversation, as always, continues on the exchange. By the way, Tony, I forgot to say I watched
1: your piece with Darius Dale. Really fantastic stuff. Darius is an up and coming star in the financial markets. I love his approach. I love his energy. I love his intensity. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to touching base with that guy, you know, very often on personal terms and hopefully on a regular basis for real vision um, viewers, because I think looking at the world through his lens has definitely opened up my eyes to a lot of different. you know, sort of nuances in the market, if you will. You know, I've got, my, uh, I've got a very strict set of ways and sort of uh, ways of following the market and means of behaving in the market. And I listen to Darius and I'm like, wow, there's an interesting way of thinking about inflation versus deflation and that there's too much narrative at times. And that's, that's a lot of talk that I really respect. So I'm looking forward to getting to know Darius even better.
2: Yeah, I got to say, if you're not a Real Vision subscriber, check this one out. It's a fascinating conversation because it's like a meeting of two different worldviews. It's like a, a world-class sprinter talking to a world-class marathoner, right? You guys, looking at this as a perspective uh, of a, of a, of a macro analyst on the one hand and a trader on the other, I think it's just fantastic content. I'd love to see
1: more of it. Yeah, it's really good. He's got a great handle on the economy and the bond markets and stuff like that. And I'm a very reactionary trader, so it's probably a good a good um, combo for people that are listening and looking to make money. I can see where that could be an effective combo. Yeah, indeed. OK,
2: this time we're really wrapping, but really wanted to say that because it is such a great piece. Thanks. Thank guys, you for people. taking the time.
1: Thanks for taking the time. Darius is the man. Darius is the man. Thanks for watching, everybody.